0: 1 John chapter uh, 4. 1 John chapter 4 is where we are today. 1 John chapter 4. We'll be picking up in the 13th verse of 1 John uh, chapter 4. We're working our way through this love letter of the Apostle John to the church. uh, And we find ourselves here in that section where he's speaking of God's love. Let's play a little game since we're leading into the election. Let's have a little imagination game, if you will. Imagine with me if you were to describe the qualities of the perfect leader or president or king or pastor. Uh, Pastor wouldn't be hard, you got such an example. But the idea would be. Easy now, easy. But the idea would be, is, what do those qualities look like? You, you might say things like honesty, integrity, humility, uh, communication skills, leadership, power. You might list some of those things you're looking for in a leader. And, and as you list those things out, and, and certainly as we think about the political world that we live in, we realize pretty quickly no one adds up all the way. There's not the perfect pastor. There's not the perfect president. There's not the perfect mayor or elected leader or teacher. There's there's not a perfect person out there when it comes to the qualities of leadership. And in fact, what we're looking for is God. We want someone to add up to Christ himself when he walked the earth. I mean, think about it. Wasn't Christ honest? The Bible says in Titus, God is not like man that he should lie. Wasn't Christ humble? Sure, he humbled himself to even death, death on a cross, Paul would say. Wasn't God a great communicator? Or isn't, I'm saying past tense, like he's not still God. Isn't God a great communicator? Sure, he speaks through his word that is perfect. He speaks through his son. He speaks through angels. He speaks through burning bushes. He even spoke through a donkey. He can do it, right? He's all of those things. And we can keep listing them out. He's holy and righteous and just. And and when we start to think about the perfect leader, the perfect person, we ultimately realize that God is the standard and no one adds up. This is what the writers of the New Testament do. Over and over and over, they introduce us to the qualities, the characteristics, the very essence of God. They will tell us of his holiness and his just. They will tell us of his righteousness and his mercy. They will describe for us his grace and his power and his knowledge and his wisdom. They will lay all of these things out for us. But John, John in particular, goes back to one essence or one aspect of God over and over and over. John seems to zero in on one of his attributes, and that is love. John is enamored with the love of God, that God would love sinners, that God would care for those who are far from him, that God's love would send his son, that God's love would call us his children. John finds himself zeroing in and focusing on this idea of love. Now, we should be clear here. When we speak about the attributes of God, there is one thing that we should always remember. God is all of them at all times equally. God is all of them at all times equally equally. And so while John seems to be focusing in on love, he is certainly not saying that love is more important than God's righteousness or holiness or just. In fact, the reason why God is so loving is because he is all of those things equally at all times. In his justice, he is full of love. In his grace, he is full of love. In his mercy, he is full of love. In his righteousness, in his power, in his judgments, there is love. In everything, God is equal all the time. And John is particularly curious about God's love. In fact, we saw last week, if you have your Bible open, you can look there at verse seven. We saw last week that he began with this definition of love. He will get down through there in the first couple of verses, verse seven, verse eight, verse nine, and he will ultimately say, here's the definition of love. God is love. He will tell us this is the very essence of love, that the the definition of love is found in God. And in those first couple of verses, verses seven through 12, he tells us about the origin of love, where it comes from. It comes from God. He tells us how we can see the definition of love, that it is Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. His propitiation is the word that he uses to stand in our place. He describes for us this beautiful love of God. But today in verse 12 or verse 13, excuse me, he'll turn the conversation a little bit. He'll look at it from a different angle. He'll take a different shade on the definition of love when it comes to God. You see, in verses 7 through 12, he tells us where God comes from and how we can see God in the love of Christ. But in verse 13, he starts to tell us what God's love does. He starts to tell us in verse 13 about the working power of God's love, that it has a purpose, that it has an effect, that it does something, that it is doing something. And so we will see in verses 13 through 21 the wonderful love of God. We will see what it does and and how it has a a purpose for us in the love of God. And so join me, if you will, in your copy of God's Word. I'm going to read while you follow along 1 John chapter 4. Starting in verse 13, I know the screen says chapter 1. Don't get confused, that's a typo, all right? 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love of God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him, verse 17. By this is the love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is also, we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has not seen, cannot love God whom he has seen. Verse 21, and this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray together, Father. Father. Lord, help us uh, again see about your marvelous, wonderful, matchless love. Remind us, Lord, that your love is such a blessing to us, that it has a purpose, Lord, that you in your love are acting on our behalf. And so, Lord, I I pray this morning that you would remind us, remind us of just how loved we are by you. Lord, lift up our eyes, lift up our spirits. Father, in in a week that's been full of, of ups and downs and, and struggles in a, in a year that's been full of struggles, in a season that seems to be of unending uh, divisiveness and fighting and, and contention. Lord, as your people, we just need to see you again, fresh and anew. So show us, Father. Teach us about your love. Show us what your love has done for us. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, John will show us God's love and effect towards us. He'll give us three truths of what God's love has done for us. Let me give them to you this morning. Truth number one, God's love draws us into his family. God's love draws us into his family. If you look at those first couple of verses, verses 13 through 16, you'll see the Trinity on full display. He will tell us in verse 13 that we've been given the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit given to us. He will tell us in verses 14 and 15 that this is because Christ has come to die for us. And then he will say in verse 14 and verse 16 that Christ came to die because the Father has sent him. Now think about this for a moment. When we love one another, sometimes it's half-hearted, isn't it? Sometimes it's going through the motions but not our Father. Our Father loves us wholeheartedly. Why? Because we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He is fully invested in loving us. And we see this in the fact that God sent His Son to die for us and sent His Spirit to live in us. He is a gracious God, and both of those are loving acts. God loves us. He is fully invested in pouring his love out onto his people. And what John will reveal in these passages is we know God is love and we know Jesus died. But now he'll begin to say, here's the reason why. Here's what God's love has done. And he will tell us in these first couple of verses that God's love is to bring us into his family. The love of God is to draw us into his family. Let's look together at the text. Look at verse 13. He says in verse 13, but this, is, but this we know that we abide in him and he abides in us because he has given us his spirit. Now notice what he says here. He says, the love of God has given us his spirit. Because God is love, we read this in the verses above it, verse 12, because God is love, he has sent to us his spirit to live inside of us. The very spirit of God is the vehicle for which God displays his love on us, that he personally gives to us, It is the delivery of God's love to us through his spirit. He has given us his spirit. Now notice the word abide. Notice that word there. The word abide means to live in, to stay in. It's present tense. It means now. It means continual. And so ultimately what God is saying is that the love of God has sent you his spirit in order to bring you into his family. And now forevermore you are in his family. And now forevermore you abide in his family. And you abide in his family because he abides in you. Now listen, let me just be very clear with you. If you could leave God's family, you would have done it already. Your sin would have ran you out of God's family over and over and over and over. But because God abides in you, you now are drawn into his family in a love that is secure, unchanging, unmoving. God is not like man that he should lie. He tells us the Spirit abides in us. We have this power to be drawn in. Now, notice what else we find in the text. He's telling us that if we have this power of this Spirit, then we know we're in the family of God. If we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, we have confirmation that we are part of God's family, that we've been brought into the kingdom of God. We have this confirmation. And now that the Spirit is in us, if you'll notice with me, verse 13 again, By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us. You know what that means. That means that I now have God inside of me helping me to love him like I should. And he's showing me he loves me because he's dwelling inside of me. It is a reciprocal relationship of love. It is good for us that God would draw us into his family. I now have the power to love him back because he loves me. I can love him because he loves me. I can return the love that is granted to me in the power of the Spirit back to the Father. The Holy Spirit shows us his love. Now, I want you to notice, though, how this happens. Look with me at verse 14 and 15. How does one get the love of the Spirit? How does one draw into God? How does the Spirit enter your life? How do I get this blessing? Pastor, I want to know the love of God. I want the Spirit of God to live in me. I want to be drawn into the family. How does this go about happening? How do I get the seal of the Holy Spirit, as we would say? Well, look with me at verse 14 and 15. Here we go. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides, in him and he in God. Now he's telling us how this happens. He's telling us how we're brought into the family of God. First, we are brought into the family of God because the Spirit of God has brought the vehicle of love to us, but the Spirit of God brings to us the testimony of Christ. And upon confession of Christ, as he would say here, we are now given into the family of God. Because of Jesus Christ, we are made part of the family of God. Listen to me now. The love of God has sent you his Son in order to die for you and sent his Spirit in order to live in you. Let me tell you, God loves you. He loves you. He dwells in you. He strengthens you. He calls you. He beckons you. He wants you to be a part of his family and his fellowship. What a Valentine's card we read in these verses. God declaring to us, come to me. All you are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He is seeking us. He is looking for us. He is trying to find his Children. Now, notice what John says in this text. Look with me again. Verse 14. And we have seen and testified. This is the third time that John will speak of him sending his son. This is the third time that John will go over this idea that we saw Jesus in the flesh. Why is this important? Because brothers and sisters, when I tell you that God wants you into his family, I want you to know it's a historical fact that God sent his son to come get you. It is a historical fact, it is a real truth that God himself, clothed in flesh, came to this earth, born in Bethlehem, walked a perfect life, carried the cross up Golgotha, died on that tree, buried in that tomb, rose from that grave. Why? Because he really did die. In a real tomb, he was buried and a real resurrection occurred. Why? Because he came to save the world. Because he loves us. So I want you to know that God really does love you, and I can prove it because he really did die for you. He really did shed his blood for you. John says, We have seen him. We know this. This is an historical fact, and we're the eyewitnesses of it. We know that God loves us. We have seen Jesus. We've all been in that place where somebody says they love us, but we wanna see it, don't we? We wanna know the proof is there. We wanna know, well, you say you love me, but I still don't have power. Who's cooking lunch, right? You say you, just seeding it in there, just working it in along the way, right? You say you love me, but this or that. What does God say? God says, I love you, and let me show you. Brothers and sisters, the love of God is not stagnant. It is not stale. It is not passive. It is an act of love. Look at the words that he uses. God sent his son. The love of God sent his son. Why? In order to draw us into his family. In order to bring us into his fellowship. In order to, to guide us in here. And, and notice what he says. Look, look at the words. Let's not forget this. It says in verse 14, the second part. He sent his son to be the savior of the world. Now we can see that phrase savior of the world and we can celebrate with joy. God has saved me. God has saved me. But we must stop and remember what he saved me from. For our destination was hell. Our diagnosis was death. Our sin had separated us from God. We were in need and desperate need of something outside of us intervening into our life and into our soul. And lo and behold, what does the love of God do? He intervenes and sends his son. God moved on our behalf. God did this, not while we were begging him or pleading with him. We did not merit his coming. We did not buy his coming. We did not please him in any way that he should come. But because of his love, he sent his son to save us. Now, let us pause here for just a moment. I want you to see two beautiful truths about the gospel in this text. Look there at the words. It says, God sent his son. And look at the very next verse. It says in the very next verse, uh, excuse me, I lost my place. Verse 15 Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. I want you to see two ideas from this text that are beautiful about the gospel. First, I want you to see the inclusivity of the gospel, it includes anyone. John three sixteen says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believe him will not die, but have everlasting life. Romans 10, 13 says, for whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. John says, even here, whoever confesses Jesus, the gospel is for all who will come. The gospel is a blanket call. God loves the world. But I want you to see the exclusivity of the gospel. Because notice what he says. Look there at the text. It is inclusive, all who will come, but is exclusive in the sense that there's only one way to come. You can't come by many roads. You can't come by many directions. You can't come through other religions. You can't come through good behavior or morality. You can't come through church attendance or baptism or tithing. Here's how you must come. Look at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is for everyone, but it's only for those who say Jesus is Lord. It's only for those who realize they need saving and they come in their brokenness and their sin and they declare to Jesus, I believe you are the Savior. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the grave. I believe and put all my trust in you and you alone. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's for all who will come, but you must come to Jesus. We know this is true. Jesus himself would say in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not one of the ways, but the way. Paul would write, or excuse me, Luke would write in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is no other name given among men which you can be saved. And he's implying there the name of Christ. You must come to Christ. So let us pause for just a moment. Let us take an aside from this text where we think about God drawing us into our family and let us think about the millions millions and millions and millions and millions and millions who do not know Jesus Christ. Let us think for just a moment the difference between them and us. You want to know the difference between me and the lost person on the other side of the world in Southeast Asia? Here's the difference. I was born to two parents who told me about Jesus. I was born to grandparents who talked to me about Jesus. I was born in a community where people taught me in Bible school and Sunday school. I, I was in a place where I learned about Jesus. And so that, that little boy being born now in Iraq and Iran and North Korea and Southeast Asia where there are 0.00000001% Christian and they have no knowledge of the gospel. Listen to me now. Hear the weight of the story of the gospel. They need a savior and we have the message. They need a savior and we have the story. They need a savior and we have been trusted with the keys of the kingdom in order to share that message. What does John say? ever confesses Jesus as the son of God shall abide in him. You cannot abide in God unless you come to Christ and you cannot come to Christ unless you confess him and you cannot confess him if you do not know him. And so brothers and sisters, There are so many around the world and dare I say around our neighborhoods that are not in the family of God. They are outside in need of a savior and you and I have the message. We have the message. We have the good news. We have the good news to tell them that politics won't rescue you. Jobs won't rescue you. The economy won't rescue you. Your 40K, 401k won't rescue you. Relationships won't rescue you. You are dead and headed to judgment. And only Jesus will rescue you. Look with me, if you will, at the text. He says simply, we must know that we are sinners in need of saving. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God abides in him and he in God. Paul would write it this way in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 and 14, speaking of this idea of saving, he says, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of our sins. That's what saving means. He ripped us out of darkness and put us into light. He's forgiven us of our sins and brought us into his Family, but we must go with the message. The theologian Carl Henry writes it this way. He is famous for saying these words The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. It's only good news if it gets there in time. Brothers and sisters, let us know that we've been drawn into the family of God because of God's love. And thus, we have a privilege to go and tell others about the family they can enter into. Let us be called and convicted over this, that unless you confess Christ, you will not see the kingdom of God. But God's love has drawn us in. He cares about us. John would say this in chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. John would write this in the Gospel of John, John 1:12, for as many as believed in him and have received him, they have the right to be called sons and daughters of God. Listen to me. The love of God has made you his children. His children. You are the child of the king. The one who places the stars in the sky and tells the ocean where to stop. The one who feeds the birds and clothes the flowers. The one who has created the cosmos. The one who holds all things together. The one who knows every cell and atom in your body the every number of hair on your head. The God of all creation. The God who walked with Adam. The God who led Abraham. The God who rescued Moses. The God who's discipled the disciples. The God who rose from the grave. And the God who is coming again, brothers and sisters because of Jesus Christ he calls you his family his family listen to me those of you that might be in the room and and you're still young and trying to figure out your identity can I help you for just a moment the world is going to throw you a thousand different things every day and it's going to move faster than you can keep up All of the trends and the settings and the beliefs and the culture are going to be bombarded on top of you. Listen to me now, those of you that find yourselves in the younger demographic of the room. I'll let you decide who's in that. Listen to me now. Find your identity in Christ. Know that you are a daughter and a son of the Lord Jesus Christ. And no matter what the world may call you, no matter what your friends may say about you, no matter what the political spin may try to tell you, you are firmly planted in the fact that you are a son or daughter of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And there you will find your stability. And there you will find your foundation. God's love draws us into his Family. Let me give you a second effect of God's love from this text. Not only does it draw us into his family, but it delivers us from fear. Look with me uh, at the text in verse 17 through 19. I love this section here because he begins to tell us of the future effects of God's love. The love we have now has a future effect because God is abiding in us. Look with me at verse 13, or excuse me, verse 17. Listen to what he says in verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Who We love because he first loved us. Now I want you to notice in verse 17, he says the love is perfected, Now, he does not mean that somehow God's love was imperfection when it came to us, that it had flaws or blemishes. What he's simply saying is, is that when we meet Christ, when we come to Christ, and the Spirit of God now abides in us because we've come to the love of Christ, God sent his Son, then then here's what takes place. The full effect of God's love has worked. It has reached its end. It's made its final play. It's it's all the way out. It's perfect. It's filled in all the gaps along the way. And what he means by that is simply this. We are now secured in God so our eternal security is clear, is firm, and we don't have to fear the day of the coming of the Lord. Now look at the text. See what he means. He says this. Christ's love by by the Savior, if you look at verse 17, by this love is perfected with us, So that we may have confidence, that means stand boldly, for the day of judgment. Now think about it. There is coming a day where the Lord who created everything is coming back. And he will gather everyone up in front of him. All those that have died, all those that are alive, he will gather them up in front of them and he will dole out his judgment. And his judgment will be based on his holiness. He is the standard of judgment. Where he is, is without blemish. Heaven is without blemish. There is no sin, no flaw, no failure in heaven. If heaven were just like earth, we would not look forward to it. But we know that it is perfect and it is pure. There is no more struggle in heaven, no more death, no more lying, no more cheating, no more contracts, no more pers- Percentages on loans. No more blue cloths and blue shield bills. Can I get an amen? amen? Not in heaven. It's perfect. Why? Because God is perfect. And so when he gathers everyone up, the standard is his holiness. And so for you and me in our sin and in our brokenness, when we think about the standard of God and his holiness on the day of judgment, the first thought we might have is fear. I should not be here. I do not deserve to walk into your presence. Oh, I am in trouble. But notice what he says. When you've experienced the perfect love, the Savior, Jesus Christ, and the Spirit now abides in you, Then you can stand before God on that day of judgment, not because you are holy, but because Jesus is holy for you. And you can stand with confidence and know that you don't have to fear the coming of the Lord, for you have Christ. You can stand with boldness before him because you're no longer guilty before the Lord. You have Christ. Have you ever gotten a speeding ticket and you were speeding? Now, I ask that question because some of you will immediately go, well, I wasn't speeding, I promise I wasn't speeding. And you know you're lying, so just stop it, right? right? But you're speeding. You're driving 100 miles an hour in a 55. There's work crews everywhere. You're blatantly speeding. And the police officer, who is assigned by the Bible as government to keep us from killing ourselves, by the way, pulls you over. And you know you got nothing to say. I mean, you are guilty from one end to the other. You might try something. I've all, we've all been there. I, I had to get hurried to pick up my children. I was going to the orphanage to feed homeless people, right? You, you try. You lay your Bible on the dash, right? We got some police officers in the room. They know all these tricks, right? You lay your Bible on the dash. You start to cry and weep about something that's happening and those kind of things. But you know you're guilty. And so you take the ticket. Why? Because you have no confidence to fight the rules. You have no confidence to fight the the, the, uh, imperfection, the sin, the blemish, the brokenness. You have no confidence. Now now notice the word that John uses. John says because of the perfect love, because of the love of Jesus, because of the abiding spirit in you, because of what God has done for us, when you stand before the Lord on judgment day, you don't have to cower in fear like someone who's been guilty of a speeding ticket. You can stand with confidence because you know you're right because Jesus has saved you. You don't have to fear it. Now, notice with me in verse 18, the word that he uses. He says in verse 18, these words, he says, um, "There, there there, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. You see that word punishment there? He's getting to the crux of the matter. We all know we're going to stand before God, and we all know God is going to judge perfectly. And if he judged us based on us, we would deserve punishment. Do you know, in the New Testament, the word hell is mentioned 12 times. Of those 12 times in the New Testament, 11 of them come out of the mouth of Jesus. 11 times Jesus speaks of hell. In fact, he spoke of hell more than heaven uh, because he was coming to warn people. He was coming to tell them of the coming judgment, that God is coming to give a judgment. But do you know something? It is so awesome to me that the God who come to warn us about hell is the same God who will save us from hell. Isn't that a special thing? Isn't that a beautiful thing of the love of God? He says, you don't have to fear the punishment that's coming. You are loved by God. God loves you. He came to rescue you. He came to save you. He came to bring you in. But I noticed a little bit. Let's go just a step further in verse 18. There is no fear in love. Now, all throughout this passage, John has been telling us that we abide in him and he abides in us. That means he's in me, so I have, uh, I have him working through me to love the way I'm supposed to love and to commune with him the way I'm supposed to commune. And, and I know that I'm in him, which means I'm seated with him in the heavenlies. And whatever this world may throw at me, it cannot change my destination because I'm going to be delivered. I have confidence on the day of judgment because of the love of God. So, so I love the way he says this. So it's almost as if John is saying... You don't have to fear the future, but you also don't have to fear the now. Now, brothers and sisters, how often can we be crippled by fear now? We can be crippled by fear in the uncertainty of the days that will unfold. We can be crippled by fear by the the spin of constant bombarding of news. We can be crippled by fear because of sickness, and those are certainly things we think about. We can be crippled by fear in the sense of of a world that we see is is falling apart. But but what does he say? If you have love, if you abide in God, then love and fear cannot exist together. They do not coexist. They do not stand together. That love drives out fear. Now, now let me just for a moment remind you that, that I'm not speaking about fear as in reverence. I'm thinking about fear as in scared, paralyzed worried about what the future will hold or, or what God will do or if it will work out. We can find ourselves worried and paralyzed and not, not operating, but then we must be reminded we have God living in us. We have God holding us. We have no reason to fear. And maybe just more simplistic, let's put it this way. If I don't have to fear the day that I die and stand before God, I certainly don't have to fear now in front of y'all. I don't have to fear tomorrow and whatever I meet. I don't have to fear the ballot box. Why? Because whoever the president is, I'm going to stand before God and God's going to let me in. It don't matter. I don't have to fear. So he says, perfect love drives out fear. And then he kind of sums it up by telling us what perfect love is. He says in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If there is not a verse you have not underlined yet in John, that's the one to underline. Circle it, star it, underline it. If you don't write in your Bible, get over it. Circle it, star it, underline it. We love because God loved us. Let me show you a third and final truth of God's love, and that's simply this. God's love demands we love the fellowship. It calls us into this family, into this fellowship of believers, and now he demands that we love each other. In fact, he will give us some very practical advice in these last two verses. He will tell us that the love of God has transformed us by bringing us into a family, and the love of God has dispelled fear now. We don't have to worry about what's to come. We don't have to worry about judgment. We don't have to worry about the world. We stand now with the Lord. And then finally, he will say, because you have all of this confidence, because you have all of this inside of you, because God is with you, he's drawing you into this fellowship, now we must love one another. We must love the fellowship of God. Believers, look with me verse 20 and 21 as we close. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he can see cannot love God whom he cannot see. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now notice what John is doing. He has been since verse 7 telling us of the love of God. That it is God who defines love. It is God who delivers love. It is God who has showed us love in Christ. It is God's love that draws us into his family and gives us his spirit. It is God's love that sent his son to die for us so that we may not have fear of death or judgment. That our sins be washed away. He is telling us all about this love that God has done for us. And now he says, here's what God's love demands in return. That you love one another. Now, he's making a lesser than, greater than argument. Let me show you what I mean. He says in verse 20, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Now, that doesn't take a lot of preacher explaining right there, does it? He said the hypocrisy of saying, oh, yes, I'm good with God, but not fellowshipping with the believers, not caring about the church, not caring about the Christian family, not being drawn into the kingdom. If you have no love for your brothers and sisters, then you're a liar and the hypocrisy will not stand. But notice how he makes his argument. Look at what he says. He says, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. His argument is simply this. It's easier for me to love a person standing in front of me than an invisible God I can't see. And if I can't love the person standing in front of me, I certainly can't love the invisible God. If I can't display love to the people that are tangibly around me, how in the world can I love a God that is so much bigger and greater and higher? He's making a less than to greater than argument. John Stott would write it this way. He would say this, summing this up, he would say, it is obviously easier to love and serve a visible man than an invisible God. And if we fail in the easier task, it's absurd to claim success in the harder one. You cannot say I love God while hating the people that are standing in front of you. You cannot say I love God while mocking the fellowship of the church. You cannot say I love God without sacrificing for one another. You cannot say I love God by forsaking the gathering of believers. You can't do it. John says you're a liar. It's not true. You've not met the perfect love of God. Because, go back through the text, if you've met the perfect love of God, then God dwells in you, which draws you to his family, and you worship the son who saved you together. And might I add this? on the day of judgment, we're going to all be together. And if we don't have love for one another in this world, how in the world can we expect that God will bring us into his next world? He is calling us into this love. There is a command here to do this. Look at verse 21. He brings us the very summary of the gospel that Jesus would tell us, the very summary of the commandments, verse 21. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his Brother, the very visible way I love the family of God shows the invisible way I love God. Let me put it this way. The visual expression of loving the unseen God is seen in loving the people I can see. I must show the love of God has had effect on my life by loving other people. Oh, what a wonderful love. What a marvelous love. What a gracious love. Can we for just a moment bow our heads and contemplate the love of God? Just for a moment, I I want you to just think about the love of God. Think about a God who would come and save you despite your sin. Think about a God who would not only lay down His life, but also give you His Spirit. Think about a God who would draw you into His family and dispel fear. Think about a God who would give you not only an eternal family, but here now an earthly family in the church, in the fellowship. Oh, the love of God. Oh, the matchless love of God. Father, as we contemplate your love, we confess it is more than... And we can even fathom. We could talk on it every day of our life and still but scratch the surface, Lord. You are marvelous, and magnificent, and wonderful. You are not only the definition of love, but you are the one who brings love to us. We would not know love if you've not burst into our world. And Lord, even more than that, it's not that you just burst into our world, Father, through Christ. Through the conviction of the Spirit, through the confession of our mouth, you burst into our own hearts. You love each one of us. You call us all by name. You secure all those who are in Christ. Oh, what love that would reach all who would beg you to save and you save. What love. What love that would tell me I'm a child of the King. What love would tell me, do not fear what this world may have. Do not fear your last breath. Do not fear death. Do not fear punishment. Do not fear judgment for Christ has saved you. The Spirit is inside you and the Father's love will deliver you. What love is this? Oh God, I pray each and every one of us would We would bask in the beauty of your love. We would meditate on it. We would contemplate it. And God, I pray that we would display your love and how we love one another. That we would give visible proof that we are communing with the invisible God. Your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. A chance to worship the Lord, to respond to His great love. Maybe this morning you say, Pastor, I'm not sure I know the love of God. I'm not sure the Spirit abides in me. I don't know that I've ever confessed Jesus as Son of God, Savior of the world. I'm afraid of the day of judgment. I'm afraid to stand before God. Oh, He knows what I've done. And brother, sister, I beg you today as the apostles preached and declared, today is the day of salvation. I plead with you to come to the Lord Jesus, to cry out to Christ for His mercy and ask Him to to save you, to forgive you, to redeem you. The Bible says that He is just and true to forgive us our sins. You must confess your sin. You must confess that Jesus is the Son of God sent to save the world. You must confess that you put all your hope in Him. Maybe you're here this morning and you are a believer but you you kind of feel beat down, you feel broken, and you just want to come and, and pray at this altar and say, Lord, remind me of your love. Stir my soul again. Remind my heart of your affection towards me. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, after hearing the love of God again, I'm reminded of just how, how much I don't add up and how I want to show the love of God to others even more. And you want to come and, and confess your hard hardness, and, and ask the Lord to use you to obey his commandments. We love one another. Whatever you, Father, hear from the Spirit this morning, whatever the Word has placed in your uh, heart and mind, I pray that you would, as we sing together, allow the Spirit to work and deal and that you would know the love of God. Lord God, lead us now, we pray, in this time of response. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us this morning?